Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. I want to thank you all for all your support. You guys are amazing. All the emails and letters and and even telling you about your Amazon purchases from the website to benefit the Jewish Boy College Fund. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. doesn't cost you anything. And you go on my website, barrycats.com slash podcast. Click the Amazon banner on the top right. Buy whatever you want. And Amazon, so generously because of this show, gives uh, my boys a little bit of shekels for buying the right kind of bong eight years from now. But I'm so excited because I have my guest here, Sandy Kleiman. I'm going to admit to something that I've never admitted to in front of probably one of the most powerful guys in show business. I've been trying to get this guy to do this show, I'd say, for two years. Since I started, he was one of the guys that I identified that I wanted to interview and I just couldn't get him here each time. You know, okay, I'll come, but what is it about? How does it work? I'm not sure. I'm, I don't really do these long-form things. I'm not, I don't think I'm that interesting, Barry. And I'm like, you're very interesting. You're an amazing man. Anytime you, you get in an elevator with a guy to come up here, I went down personally to go down and get this guy. I hear something embarrassing. I slept here last night. I prepared so much. I wanted to be here. I wanted to be good for this man. I wanted to have a great show. How many people sleep in their office to do an interview the next morning? But I just wanted to. And to prove the point, I get to the building. I go down and shake his hand myself. I don't send, like, an assistant down to get him. I go down and get him myself. 
And he says, oh, God, this is, I thought you were going to send somebody down to get me. It was like something I could tell he was happy that I came down to get him. You know when you're with a powerful guy in the business, when he says, yeah, I started in this building in my career. Here I'm here. I'm in my 50s. I'm here. He started here. You get in the elevator. Hi, Steve. How you doing? Jane, how are you? Good to see you again. What's it? It's like everybody knows him in the place. It's like he's the mayor of this building. He hasn't been here in God knows 25 years or how long it's been. And so I never know what I'm going to say when I look across from my guest. And uh, as I look at Sandy Kleiman, I think to myself, one of the times that uh, I really felt a sense of who he was was when he was at a company called Threality, which was a very innovative uh, 3D image capture, I'd say, film and television leader in the business at the time when you never even heard of 3D television or films or anything like that. You heard of them because when I was a little kid, I used to go to these Frankenstein movies in these uh, in the Bing Theater in Springfield, Massachusetts and put on the glasses. But it sort of was a dying kind of technology that people weren't using in 2007 that much. So I go into a meeting with Sandy, with Dane Cook, and we're talking about doing the first 3D comedy concert movie. And they did a presentation that was absolutely incredible. And Sandy came in, and he, he was just amazing in the meeting. And he was very humble, but he was a leader of men and women. And he was a guy who, even though he was probably brought into the company to take them to a higher level than they were, he was a guy who made everybody feel like a million bucks. And even though there were members of the team there that had been there, God knows, trudging it out in the 3D world for 10, 15 years, and he might have only been there a year or two or however it was, he was embedded. They felt of him. There was so much love and respect and admiration for him, at least walking through those hallways that I felt. You know, it was incredible. And sometimes when you're a leader there might not even be that admiration and love. Sometimes there might be somebody in the company that's walking around that's like thinking, wow, God, I can't fucking believe they brought in Sandy Kleiman. I deserve that job. Why did they bring in an outsider? I, I'm, I'm primed for that job. And for him, his job when coming into a company is to understand and have the sixth sense to know, okay, who are the people that are happy I'm here and who are the people that are unhappy I'm here that are smiling at me and hugging me and saying, God, good to have you here, Sandy. Amazing. God, we're so happy to have you. And fig figure out a way to navigate and, and, and take a company to the next level. And Sandy is that kind of guy. And one of the things I wanted to say that so impressed me of that meeting, not just the way it was presented and how the tour was and how they took you around and you felt like you were, you knew you really felt like you were a part of something. And Dane Cook would have done a 3D movie concert film in a heartbeat. The only thing there with that te technology at the time was the financing and how it needed to go and put it together. And at that time, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was when all the financial stuff hit the fan in 2008 and it was a crazy time to try to get the kind of money you wanted to get for something. And people were a little nervous, even though he was a big star and doing really great. 
but it cost a significant amount more money at that time than a regular stand-up special. So in other words, if he did a special at Boston Garden and it cost $1.7 million, this technology to do it properly might have cost an extra million dollars. It might have cost an extra 700000 whatever it was. And yes, he could have done his concert film in a lesser space for the same budget and done the 3D, but he elected to do it the way he did it, and, and it worked out fine. But what really impressed me was the fact that Sandy was involved with the first ever 3D concert film, which probably the gold standard of rock and roll bands did, U2. And when I think of U2, I think of, if you're here in Los Angeles, is like the Peninsula Hotel of rock and roll bands. And for you not familiar with Los Angeles, the Peninsula Hotel sits right next to, uh, did sit right next to the building where Sandy worked at Creative Artist Agency, and is probably the most prestigious hotel in Los Angeles. And next to maybe the Riga in New York is one of the top hotels, and U2 is one of the top bands. So this guy finds the top band in the world, brings them into the office or figures out a way to get them in and figures out a way for them to commit to this technology. And he, along with them, worked together to produce the first ever 3D concert film. And the thing that I think about Sandy is somebody that I would think about for any of you out there that you should want to aspire to be is the guy who can say, I was the first guy to ever do that. And so whatever you're doing out there creatively in the world or whatever job you're in, as Sandy did with Reality, with the U2 concert film in 3D in 2007, I believe it was, he did something that was never done before. No one can ever take that away from him. No one can ever say in the world, hey, you know what, uh, we were the first ones to do that. No, he was. And in that world, he'll always be remembered, and he'll always be that asterisk in anyone that does a 3D concert film for the rest of time. That the first one, remember the first one, U2, that Sandy Kleiman did with them and 3Ality? That was it. That was the gold standard. That was the thing that broke down the walls for everybody else. So I don't care what profession you're in or if you're in the entertainment business. The whole goal that you have that will get you to the next level and never take you down is being the person who's the groundbreaking person to break something that's never been done before. Lorne Michaels, Saturday Night Live. No one will ever take that away from him. Anything in this business you can think of, Dane Cook doing the first comedy special from an NBA arena on film, no one's going to take that away from him. No one can take that away. And all these things that happen in life, we're here at the, in this building, Loeb and Loeb, the greatest law firm you can point to. I think they have six floors here. When, when Sandy started here, maybe they had one floor or maybe they had a half a floor. The groundbreaking kind of cases that they've done that they can point to that nobody else has ever won or gone to. And in every level of the profession, that's what you want to do. So when I see something out there or any artist out there that's doing something on YouTube, I know or I see a sitcom that's on television that I say, well, God, it seems like that's been done before. I see a romantic comedy. Well, it seems like that's the same kind of theme. 
that doesn't excite me as much as when I see a movie, let's say, like Bridesmaids, which has seven women as the leads, and it's like, wow, I've never really seen anything like this before. I realize it's the same kind of formulas, but Judd Apatow put this all together, and I don't remember anything like this before. And that's what you want. And when I think of Sandy Kleiman, that's what I think of. And when I think of all of you out there in the world and what you want to do, if you can create the same kind of environment with the people you work with that Sandy creates, and you can create something that has never been done before, you will rise to the top of your profession, and I can guarantee you, you will have an advantage over everyone in that profession. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so pumped today because I'm sitting across from one of the most huggable, lovable, but fierce leaders in our business, and he's probably embarrassed by my saying that, but I don't care because I'm going for it. I'm so glad he's here. There's certain people who I've always wanted to get here on this couch, and he is one of them. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce him, and hopefully he won't slip into a a coma after listening to the intro. (laughs) Sandy Kleiman is an award-winning producer and renowned entertainment industry executive. He received a bachelor's degree from Harvard and two master's degrees in business administration and in health policy and management from Harvard Business School before entering the entertainment business at MGM. There he oversaw the international theatrical distribution and pay television departments before advancing to motion picture production. He then held numerous executive positions, including VP of Production at the David Gerber Company, President of Westcom Productions, and President of Lionsgate Studios. 
He then spent 12 years as part of the senior management team at Creative Artist Agency, otherwise known as CAA, representing such stars as Robert De Niro, Robert Redford, Danny DeVito, Michael Mann, and Kevin Costner. Amateurs. As founding head of CAA's corporate practice, he also worked with global companies on entertainment investments, including Sony's acquisition of Columbia Pictures, Matsushita's Electric's acquisition of MCA, Universal and the restructuring of MGM, Coca-Cola, Ninex, and Bell Atlantic, to name a few. During a two-year hiatus from CAA, he was the corporate executive VP, then president of worldwide business development for Universal Studios, where he oversaw corporate international strategy, marketing, and led five studio operating divisions with a 1.4 billion dollars in sales. Wow. He left CAA in 1999 to found Entertainment Media Ventures, Inc., a media investment and advisory company focused on innovative technologies and entities. As such, he served as CEO for three years, as I spoke of, at 3D Technology Venture, Reality, which did 3D image capture for television and film and multimedia. He executive produced the concert film, as I said, U2 3D in 2007, which was the first digital live-action 3D film. In 2004, he co-produced the film The Aviator, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, which earned a mere $213 million at the box office and was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including Best Actor, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay. It also took home five Oscars for Best Editing, Art Direction, Costume Design, Cinematography, and Best Actress in a Supporting Role for Kate Blanchett. Four BAFTA Awards, three Golden Globes, including one to Mr. Kleiman for Best Picture. Please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, the legendary, and I like to call him my friend, Sandy Kleiman. Well, for sure, your friend, and it goes back a long way. And you know, I just want to describe for everyone where we are <laughs> because I'm not sure that gets done. So we're in Barry's man cave office, <laughs> and it's just amazing to be here because I know Barry, but it's wonderful to see the kind of love that is on the walls from music groups, sports figures, comic relief, Dane Cook, other comedians. It's a lifetime of the creative process, which is why, frankly, I probably didn't come on the show for two years because I love Barry. But, you know, frankly, you know, I, I grew up in the Bronx and where where I grew up, this sort of thing wasn't possible. I mean, the wonder of the entertainment industry is that I get to meet people from all walks of life, whether it's entertainment or business, finance, politics, charities, people, technology, people who change the world. And entertainment's the common thread between them all. But, you know, I, I grew up wanting to be behind the scenes. I mean, there's, there's just, we are all in service of great minds and great creators. And the fact that I've actually gotten to participate with them and assist them, everything that Barry just talked about are group efforts. There's nothing there that's not a group effort. I mean, the wonder of U2 3D, which was the first, is the first digital live action 3D concert film. You know, it's, it's like what Jim Cameron does every time he raises the bar. It's that that which was an 
it's a, a vision, a hope, a dream. You know, technology coupled with creativity has allowed to happen. But we're all in service to great creators. You two are the founders of the feast. There's nobody like them. What they allowed us to do, allowed us to do, it was permission. It was a partnership, but really it was a gift, was at an early time in 3D to take um, an idea and technology, creative people, you know, John Shapiro, Pete Shapiro, um, creative financiers, John and David Modell, their father Art Modell, the, the sports legend, um, Steve Schler, Howard Postley, who had developed what was an unimaginable system that automatically allowed for stereoscopic image capture, 3D, to work seamlessly so that you can get a headache. The history of 3D was you'd look at something and you'd go, wow, that's great, but boy, I seem to have a headache or I, my eyes got tired. And you take that with Catherine Owens and Mark Pellington, and Catherine Owens is a director just bands visualist for over 20 years. She grew up on the streets of Dublin with the band. They were together since high school, if not before. In fact, Bono, at the Dublin premiere of U2 3D, you know, told a story and he said, you know, I was, I, I was, it's my birthday. It was my 18th birthday and I was drunk and I was lying in the gutter in Dublin. <sighs> And I felt this kick wake me up out of the street. And I looked up into the eyes of an angel, and it was Catherine, Catherine Owens. And you think to yourself, what is great creativity? Great creativity is to have understood the music of the band so intimately and for so long that when the combination of filmmaking and this new 3D technology came together, what she did was to put you in the right place, not just to, to visualize what the band was doing, but to emotionally engage with the band and their music in just the right combination so that, in my opinion, in every moment in that film, she took you into the deep soul of what that band meant to its audience, meant to each other creatively. And again, why are we all here? Look, I mean, my gift is, is that I'm still here. I mean, lots of people fall off the edge of the earth, and I'm still here, which is okay. And I kind of like that, and I kind of, you know, look, my two sons are, one's 23, just graduated USC Film School, Joe, and today is his birthday. He is 23 today. Happy birthday, Joe. And, and Matthew, who's about to be a sophomore at Harvard, who probably will do something more useful with his life than entertainment, and per perhaps more profitable. Um, uh, but both of them, you know, the, the exercise in life is to do a couple of things one is to leave your is to listen well and to allow yourself to be in the place of great minds great people you know the gift i've tried to give them is to introduce them to the most interesting people in the world not just movie people not it, hackers company heads people who see things wildly differently professors who are changing the world of bioengineering, all kinds of things. Because at the end of the day, the skills of being in the entertainment industry and of, you know, kind of creating are at the core of all great things. And the other is, is, is to be humble about it. And my older son said it well. He said, you know, I, you know, he says, I'm not intimidated by anybody, but I am respectful of them. And he, and they both listen well.
And the, the other thing is to always leave yourself open to the unexpected. And I've cautioned and counseled my colleagues and companies and friends, you know, be nice to everybody because you just never know when the next one's going to surprise you with something unbelievable. And if you're so busy that you can't meet new people, try to arrange it so that 10, 20% of your time, you leave yourself open to the unexpected. And, you know, okay, somebody writes you, somebody calls you, somebody gets referred to you. And let's say, you know, a good percentage of those people may be a waste of time. The couple that are not a waste of time can change your life, and that's incredibly exciting. It really is. I get a lot of correspondence, and sometimes you're concerned about it because you know you're pressing a button and you're typing something that says, you know, right now I, I can't really do anything right now with this. And you know as you're doing that, maybe that something is, is something special or maybe that person is really going to change your life because fate is, is such a, an amazing thing. And I know and I want to talk about how fate has played a part in your life as, as well as your talent. Tell me about something like a chance meeting or something you took that, you know, you thought maybe I shouldn't do this or why am I here and, and, and something really wonderful happened with it. You know, it, but it happens all the time. It's hard to pick one, is, is that you just leave yourself open to this kind of, uh, you know, opportunity set. Uh, when I started in the business, you know, when I started, look, I grew up in the Bronx, and I thought we were middle class until I got to college, at which point I realized we were lower middle class, <laughs> and whatever that means. I mean, you know, I don't know how my parents paid for anything. I grew up in the New York public school system, and... Um, you know, I somehow the best way to get out of the Bronx was to work in science. And I, I remember um, I had gotten into a school called the Bronx High School of Science. And this was your ticket to not actually get killed or if you were not an athletic kid, getting beaten up in high school in the Bronx was like not an unlikely thing to happen. <laughs> and certainly lunch money. And, you know, so I, I got into Bronx science, um, which was... Uh, kind of a miracle and I had misread one of the communications they had sent me and thought that I actually had to start doing directed research in biology literally before I got there or certainly the first year I was there and I said I don't know how I'm going to do this my mother was a ward my father worked for the board of education he had worked for the finance department never went to college um, my mother had not gone to college and she was a ward clerk at Bronx Municipal Hospital which was a Jacoby Hospital, which was part of the Bronx Municipal System, of which Albert Einstein College of Medicine was the private medical school hospital side. And I don't know how I did it or why I did it, but I took the number nine bus down East Chester Road, got off, walked into the Bassine Life Science Building at Albert Einstein College of Medicine, randomly walked into the neurology lab. I still don't know why I did this or how I did this since nobody knew anybody in my family. I mean, if we knew anyone, we knew the next-door neighbor was like a key punch operator at the UN. And on the other side, he worked at a, a tire retread yard. And this was what, you know, it's not like there were doctors or lawyers around. And I walked into the 
offices of uh, a man named William T. Norton, who turned out to be one of the country's leading uh, researchers in demyelinating disorders, which he particularly was working on multiple sclerosis, which is the myelin sheath, you know, covers the nerve and the electrical impulses when the myelin sheath starts to demyelinate you start to there's a whole series of diseases of which ms is one of the you know most uh, widely uh, uh, you know dispersed in the population and i said to him can i work here and bill norton looked at me and i have no idea what he was thinking and he said okay and i worked there for six years i worked on um any number of uh, chemical uh, aspects of what might have caused demyelinating disorders, which, by the way, having now gone to the MS dinners that my, may rest in peace, my old friend Tom Sherrick hosted here and raised a fortune for the MS Society, um, his daughter has MS, and he's done did such amazing work raising both awareness and money. It is one of the diseases that 40 years later, um, 45 years later, you know, there has been remarkable achievement in terms of slowing down the progression of the disease, reversing the, the progression of the disease. So this sets you on a path. Now, did a number of different things. One is when I finally two years got around to the fact that I was supposed to be doing some kind of directed research, I was already in the middle of it. Um, two, I got to sit with doctors, particularly during summers and other breaks at lunch learned what it was like to work in a medical facility, in a research facility, um, saw a different side of life than I ever would have, either through school or through my home life. Um, learned a lot about human life because, you know, much uh, the older you get, the more you realize that, you know, human relationships are complicated. <laughs> and, you know, when you're a kid hanging around with adults whose lives are complicated, you actually sort of are able to know, to be a fly on the wall and kind of just take in sort of information and thoughts and impressions that later on will come up in ways you don't expect. And I think it also, you know, helped me later on in life in any number of things. I mean, one is uh, uh, in my third year of college, I was done with the third year of college, I decided to apply to the Harvard School of Public Health without graduating. And I'm sure that the medical research background, I was a chemistry major in college because I could. And being a chemistry major is a really good thing. Because, you know, you're an English major, they go, how'd you do? You say you're a chemistry major, no one asks another question. It's like over. You know, so what'd you do? What'd you major in chemistry? Fine, let's talk about <laughs> something else. And, you know, they don't want to know if you're a summa or a magna or cum or flunked. And, you know, it was all good. And, and eventually when I started to work in health, because I've always had health as something that was interesting to me, and health and media are now intersecting in ways never imaginable before. Um, I think I was, when, I, when I joined the board of the CDC, any number of different aspects of trying to bring media to communication about health, uh, the work at Einstein was invaluable. The relationships I made there were surprising. And I will eternally be grateful to Dr. Norton for having taken a kid who was going left and sort of got him to go right. Fate. Incredible. Thank you for telling that story. I wanted to ask you about this because a lot of parents who have kids think about this a lot. Uh, like you said, you went to public school. You didn't go to private school. I went to public school. And 
obviously here in Los Angeles with many executives, there's this movement because the schools they feel aren't really great in a lot of areas. Now, where I am in Malibu, even though the physical facilities are like from the 50s, the schools are great, Santa Monica, but most towns in this Los Angeles area, believe it or not, have really poor school systems. And executives in this town send their kids to private schools and want them to go to places like Harvard. In your opinion, because you have a son that went to Harvard, you went to Harvard, but you've known so many people who've gone to Joe's College who have been amazing in your business. And how important do you feel it is for somebody to go to like an Ivy League school or is it just something that's embedded in something? And even if you hadn't gone to Harvard, you'd still be the kind of person you are in the business. What do you feel about that? Well, firstly, let me just put in a word for USC. It's got to be a lot more fun than anywhere else. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, there is a reason. My friend Michael Pizer, who also was I had brought in to, uh, to finish U2-3D and did a great job as a professor there, and, and sort of between him, Elizabeth Daly, and, and, and the film school, uh, you know, it's an unparalleled environment, but um, if you are looking for a university with the most amazing alumni network, you know, a USC graduate will tell you that their first job in life is to hire other USC graduates, and they make no bones about it. Now, um, with regard to, to Harvard, for me, um, you know, you think about whether life is the same or life is different. So I know a lot of you know people who went to my high school, some of whom actually came from professional backgrounds, because Bronx Science actually cut across all economic backgrounds because it drew from all over the city. And the trick for me in going to Harvard was not to come out the way I went in. The trick for me was that it 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 and whether it would have been Harvard or elsewhere, I can't say. All I can say is Harvard is a remarkable environment. There's no other school like it that I've ever experienced in terms of immersing you in this sea of new things for someone who came from my background. Um, I, and I tried to, you know, while I, you know, I could, my, I think my parents would have been so happy if I were a doctor. Um, and, you know, having worked six years at a medical school, I realized I did not want to pipette another noxious, toxic liquid. I was not a happy camper cutting things open. I basically am a pescatarian. I wouldn't eat fish if I could get away with it. I don't like killing things. Um, all of these things are antith. I'm, you know, I'm there for animal rights. I'm there for human rights. I'm also there for animal rights. I, I often think that you know our pets, particularly you know dogs for me and cats as well, but dogs oftentimes you know don't deserve the owners they have because they're too good for them. And you know, so Harvard was a place to change. And you had, and what you you had to do when you're from my background, and and it's a very important aspect of values in life, is you values are critical. What you have to do is work with what you have, not be envious of what other people have, and not follow down the path that others are leading you if it's the wrong path for you. And. You know, so, you know, for me, whether it's private schools in L.A. or it's places where there's an enormous amount of privilege, you have to find your own path. And Harvard certainly allowed you to do that. And in fact, the diverse nature of the student population, the quality of the young people there, 
the sense of the good values that I actually shared with a lot of those people, their goals in life, which actually I would say the same for the public health school and business school, were, you know, nourishing and, 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 and supportive of how I approached life. That said, it also was an enormous amount of fun. You met a lot of really smart people. Um, the thing that I would say about private schools in L.A., just to get to how you get to a school, whether it's an Ivy League or USC. Um, I'm on the board of the Fulfillment Fund, and I would encourage everyone to go to their website. This is the largest mentoring organization in California, and it has been recognized as one of the most influential, if not the most influential, mentoring organization in the country. Um, People don't all start from the same place, and you've really got to pay it forward And when you meet the kinds of remarkable young people who come out of underprivileged backgrounds, people who are, you know, working, whatever my issues were growing up, they they are minuscule compared to the life issues of the kids that are served by the Fulfillment Fund. And when I see the kinds of uh, achievements that they have, personal, professional, and in terms of their community and as role models, it is life-changing. You know, it's funny, as Eric Marquez, who came out of an underprivileged area in L.A. as a friend, he was president of the alumni organization. I worked with him uh, a bit while uh, while he was going through the program at the Fulfillment Fund, and I love him. And, you know, I said to him one day, you know, he had just graduated Stanford with a double with an electrical engineering degree, was working at TRW, and he was about to go to get his MBA at the University of Texas at Austin, and he had just gotten a promotion at TRW. And I said, you know, you, you got a girlfriend at the time, and I said, you, could, you can move out of the neighborhood. He said, I said, you can move out of the neighborhood. I said, you can do anything you want now. And, you know, they were going to pay for him to go to school forever. I mean, he was that good. He wouldn't tell me what he was working on because it was classified. And he, I said to him, so you can move. And he said to me, not before I move my mother. Wow. And he was still living with his mother. And you know something? Those are the kinds of people you want leading the future. Tell me how We can you... tell war stories about the entertainment industry. <laughs> well, we, we, we will. So tell me how you go from working in the health profession for six years and your entry into the entertainment business. And before that, if you don't mind, piggyback on that and tell me what was the first thing that happened in your life that was an inspiration for you to ever want to be in this business? Well, the funny part about entertainment for me, and I think it's true all around the world, although the Internet has just exploded this a a million-fold, so when I was growing up, I grew up in the Bronx. I grew up near Boston Post Road. There were two theaters, the Lowe's Paradise and the, and, and the Lowe's Melba. We'd go see double features and basically go to the movies all the time. By the way, you didn't think a lot about what you went to see. You just went to the movies. I mean, there was television was three networks, black and white. You know, you saw it on a, a very small flea circuit. So I watched TV all the time and I went to the movies all the time. And, you know, you would think, okay, how unintellectual is that? Trust me, it's wildly intellectual. I, I learned... I, we had no resources to travel. So how do you learn about the world? You see it through the eyes of Federico Fellini in Eight and a Half. You see it through the, the, the lens of filmmakers. You see really dumb movies. Uh, I remember one, um, Ride the Wild Surf. 
okay, with Jackie Bisson. Now, by the way, I was, I was very young. And by the way, then you meet her in real life later on, which is great. But the so, you know, I'm in the Bronx. and I remember you know, the movie The Deep where she came up out of the water. That's... She came out of the water in the deep. But, you know, I think, I think in Ride the Wild Surf, I think <laughs> we should check this. This is where IMDb comes in and, and, and the Internet is in, in, invaluable. I think she comes up out. It's a surfing movie with Tony Franciosa. I think she comes out of the water and has lost her top. Now, you know, in those days, losing your top was not a PG-rated thing. And I'm, I'm sure I was with my parents, and, and they, I don't know why they took me to these movies. Um, in any event... The, well, if you're watching the, Fellini uh, as, a, as a teenager, chances are you're... Uh... Well, you know, actually even earlier than that. But the bottom line is we went to the movies. Look, I mean, I remember seeing... I don't know how we end up in seeing Change of Habit, which, believe it or not, was Elvis Presley and Mary Tyler Moore was a nun. That's and right. And they were, like, dating. And, or attempting to, and I'm it's like, and you think someone out at MGM actually came up and said, I don't know, we're in a story meeting. Uh, ah, we'll, we'll put Elvis with a nun and we'll call it change of habit. <laughs> and you think to yourself, am I ever going to be in a meeting like that? And if so, will I come up with a better idea? <laughs> Anytime I hear any title of anything that has a mixed meaning, like change of habit, I just say to myself, I don't really want to go to this meeting. But you know, when I got to college, I'm sitting in Fine Arts 13, which is a history of fine arts taught by the only Radcliffe professor at the time with a Radcliffe title, Emily D.T. Vermeule. She throws up a slide of the Acropolis and eventually throws up slides of France. P says, who's been there? Two-thirds of the room raised their hand. I knew more about Paris from movies and books than people who had visited with their families. I knew more about Greek history from movies and books than people who had set foot at the Acropolis. Television, my, you know, it's more information than you'll ever need, and I probably shouldn't say this. So my parents would, these were Jewish parents in the Bronx, okay, so they would go out to eat Chinese on the weekend. And one day I decided I, this was not something I would do because I was going to keep kosher, which I still do. And, and they would go out, and I would stay home, and I would watch PBS and in those days, PBS really was PBS. And Masterpiece Theater is amazing. But we were watching Antigone. We were watching Greek plays. I watched Atal Fugard's The Blood Knot. Atal Fugard, the South African playwright who wrote about race relations while apartheid was in full swing in protest of apartheid. And I remember seeing The Blood Knot, which was done on a shoestring budget, and it was about a black, uh, a white and, and, and black brother. Both of them were mixed race, but one passed for white and one did not. And their relationship in apartheid South Africa. And these were formative moments. And the power, whether it was television or movies, to mold my thinking, along with books, but the visual medium of taking you there was so powerful. The thought process of these great creators. And there was no real sense that I'd ever be in the business, but certainly it was what informed me about the world, about life, for good or for bad. I mean, one of the things that I think about when we make a movie or when we develop a movie or when we develop any piece of entertainment is what messages are we sending? What thoughts are we you know, coalescing for people. What discussion are we sparking? You know, when I was growing up in the Bronx, um, 
we I'd never seen what a what a movie or a TV set looked like, but I'd go to South Bronx to see my grandparents, and they'd be shooting a show you're all too young for. You may even be too young for Car Fifty Four. Car Fifty Four. Where are you? For, wasn't that Fred Gwynn? So it was Joey jo, Joey Joey Brown. I think Joey Ross, Joey Lewis. And Fred Gwynn. Fred Gwynn later on had the most the famous role of the Frankenstein, the Munsters. But Henry Fred, Munster. by the way, a Harvard graduate. Um, so Fred Gwynn, one of the great actors of our time. But, you know, it was it was officers Tootie and Muldoon. And it was, you know, frankly, you know, this is, what, 50 years ago? And you think about the power of entertainment. It's there was a, There's a holdup in the Bronx. Brooklyn's broken out in fights. There's a traffic jam in Harlem that's backed up to Jackson Heights. There's a scout troop short a child. Khrushchev's Do It Idlewild, Car 54, Where Are You? That's 50 years ago. And Al Lewis, who later was Grandpa on the Monsters, these were all the cops on the street, the police on the street, in what was a gentler New York. And, you know, I remember we would, once in a while, they'd be shooting in the neighborhood. And you'd see them, I had no idea what they were doing. So the reason I sort of came this direction was a, was a couple of reasons. One is... When I was done with business school, I realized I loved entertainment, and I loved what it did for people. I loved working on projects, and I loved being around the creative process, although, frankly, I had, you know, I was on the Lampoon, Treasurer of the Lampoon, and there was a sense of, you know, that creative literary process. But ultimately, I was a kid with no resources from the family, and the entertainment industry I'd never been west of West Virginia until my second year of business school. I went to a camp for science students in West Virginia. The only time I flew, by the way, up until, until I was going to college, the only time I flew was when NASA paid for it, a science fair paid for it. Somebody who I had won a contest from paid for it. The first flight I took, I was probably 16, and it was a math fair. And... You know, I think about my son who probably was flying at, you know, four months. And, you know, his first meal out of the house was at the Bel Air Hotel. And you think to yourself, okay, slightly different approach. But the, 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 I, I actually, Norman Lear showed up at the Harvard Lampoon and he said, kid, what are you doing? He was a great guest on the show. And he's a kid. I said, kid, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to come and, kind of try to get a job in entertainment. He said, well, come meet with me. And, and I met his organization, did not get hired. But I got on a plane in my second year of business school to see if I could, what California looked like. And really, since I didn't drive, uh, one of my friends, Tim Galagoski, actually took me out on the roads in Massachusetts going, going to rent a car. He said, you haven't driven in five years since you took your driver's exam? He said, let's go drive, which, by the way, saved my life, I'm sure. And honestly, I had no plan. I had no knowledge. All I knew was this was a business where if you were good to people and good with people and you built relationships, human capital and human assets were as or, as or more important than financial assets. The most the, the interesting thing about what you said, though, your first in, interview with one of the most influential comedy producers in the history of television, if not the most, you didn't get the gig, so your 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 the evidence that you have of your success level of going into a meeting and getting a job right away, because you went into that that room and they said you said you know you said you wanted job that really wasn't an interview, so your first real 
interview and you don't get the gig were you were you psychologically damaged thinking god how am i going to get a gig i didn't get this gig with norman lear i you know something my view is what i've I, you know I, I i i've told people you know when you want a job you basically do whatever it takes to do the job somebody says jump you say how high you know there are two two emotions happy and happier and you basically do what's necessary at all times. You're never too good to do any job. You are never above doing any job. So when I came out here, I was just determined that if I could get somebody to pay me to watch movies or, you know, TV, that that would be enough. And, you know, consequently, so what ended up happening was I came out on a on – a, um, on one of those gambits that you do in the second year of business school, which was let's go meet people on the guise of learning about the industry and see what you can, whether you can turn those into job interviews. By the way, much cruder than exists today. No LinkedIn, no, you know, you know, the networking, the this and the that and the email. There's no email. All you can do is write people with paper. It's a fascinating <laughs> world. You know, so I figure... I'm coming out here. And so in one of those interviews, I met a man who, bless his heart, passed away. Jay Rabinovitz was the chief financial officer at MGM. In fact, I had a couple of colleagues who I'd come out with a business school from, and they sort of jury-rigged it. So I got the boring interviews, and they would go to, like, the production heads. So I go see Jay. And, you know, he was a lovely man, class 42, Harvard paratrooper, um, God knows, grew up from Boston in an era where his father was in banking, but, you know, there was massive discrimination. He went into the entertainment industry, met the treasurer, John Baronio, because they didn't hire Italians either. And, and I'm sitting there in what was Louis B. Mayer's office and, you know, with these two guys. And, you know, eventually Jay introduced me. Uh, you know, I remember calling up his assistant, Dorothy, and, I said, you know, may I speak to Mr. Rabinowitz? She said, would you like to work here? And I said, I wouldn't presume that. I just really want advice. She said, would you like to work here? To which I said, I, I wouldn't presume that. Jay gave me, I would say, 50 people to go see, all of whom he had touched in some way. So when you heard about, as many people had told me, the miserable nature of people in the entertainment industry, I met 50 of the best people you'll ever meet in the entertainment industry, none of whom hired me, by the way. <laughs> I met Bud. I met you know. I met I met Bob Daly. I met Bud Grant at CBS. I met Tom Wertheimer, whose whose position I later took with his blessing at MCA as as executive vice president, um, and he was a great mentor. You know, years later, and was a friend all those years. And I made great relationships. Didn't get hired. So eventually, um, Sandy, I have to keep. I have to stop you here. So I still I can't find I can't uh, find the letter from William Morris saying. No way. <laughs> like originally, like just a few minutes ago, you said when you go in these interviews, you got to do everything you can, happy and happier, make sure you get the gig. Now, counting Norman Lear and now what you're documenting, here's about 51 interviews in a row that you've gone on where people are saying, no, we'd like to hire somebody else. What are you doing in those interviews now looking back? For our audience to hear, what were you not doing that you could have done to get the gigs? Well, firstly, being in the right place at the right time helps when there's a job open. 
not these are not these are just meeting people and they if they don't have a job for you there's no job yeah but even you know sandy that if they don't have a job then if you make an impact and a job opens up five months later you get the call so that's how this happened so i'll tell you that story so by the way just to put it in historic perspective i worked with a guy named sam marks who in the 1930s came out from new york and became Irving Thalberg's story editor at MGM in the heyday of MGM, the early days. This is the guy who bought, you know, by the way, story editor today is probably the lowest level job. In those days, he had an unlimited budget at MGM to buy anything. He bought Grand Hotel. He bought every musical. He bought everything on Broadway. He bought every book. And, and basically, he showed up at MGM, and Thalberg hired him just didn't i don't even think he interviewed him he just sort of said you're hired because they had just as the guy said i was reading his biography and i also knew sam he said they had just canned the guy before me and i showed up the day they canned him so they needed somebody else and i looked good and somebody referred me so they hired me and he said is this an important job to which the guy taking him to his office on the lot said you know you're the only guy with a can in his office in the back lot so we figure it's an important job so he had his own bathroom so you know those so i show up and you know i so to make the long story short, my friend Sue Parker, now Sue St. John's, was dating what was described to me by a Canadian producer I had met through my friend Aldo at college. He gave me three names of people to meet out here. Anna Cottle, who, bless her heart, I, I, I think Anna and Graham were divorcing and they had no time to meet me. Uh, uh, there was a woman who was a story editor at Dallas who was too busy to meet me. And there was Sue, who was dating, quote unquote, an attorney at Paramount who turned out to be the legendary financier Richard St. John's, who was the in this building, in this building, the chairman of the Guinness Film Group. So Guinness Ale had funded a production company, and he had a foreign distribution company called Producer Sales Organization, which was, in its day, a major foreign sales organization. And I went to Sue, and I said, and she said, why don't you go beat my, my boyfriend Dick? And I knew his name because the three guys I had come out from Harvard had gone and met with him and not invited me to come along. <laughs> so I go meet Dick, and Dick is in his office, which is a lot like this office, and probably a couple of floors down. And, and, and he says, you know, there are these three guys from Harvard, and they told me I was running my business entirely wrong. Why do you think they did that? <laughs> these were my <laughs> colleagues. And I said, I don't, know, I don't know, you're the chairman of the company. I don't know that I'd tell you you're doing anything wrong. He says, you seem like a smart young man. <laughs> and he, I think because of the Harvard degree and also because at the foreign sales company, it was like in those days with no gender bias here, it was all women who had been hired by the CEO. And he thought maybe a guy was a good thing to throw in there. And I started as the second secretary to Mark Damon. Second secretary. So, you know, in those days, they had these uh, uh, dictaphone things that had long, uh, you know, kind of tracks that were like uh, recording things. And you get ear infections transcribing it. And you'd type out all of the notes that, you know, one of these people made at night, you know, dictating into some primitive, you know, tape recorder, type them out, cut them up and hand them to people. This was email before there was email. You'd send telexes, which if you made a mistake, you had to do it again. And my favorite was I was there. I mean, there were two moments that I think were, were definitive. One was uh, 
I was carrying a box between uh, Mark's office and reception, and Dick St. John was going into a meeting with one of the senior partners at Loeb and Loeb in this building, and he said, go to Harvard for that, Sandy? And I said, $60,000 education carrying these boxes for you, Dick, and he just laughed. And the 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 other was and I you know Mark was selling uh, PSO was selling a film called The Change of Seasons which if you can possibly believe it in those days had a combination of Anthony Hopkins and Bo Derek and you think to yourself oh we're gonna put and and Marty Ransahoff was producing and 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 John Derek and Bo had come in Mark was going to Mifid which was a major market in Milan to sell films. And I got to run the carousel projector of John's naked photo shoot of Bo. And I'm doing this on he's the it, and they're going too much vein on that breast, and you know, and they're picking the <laughs> shots for the sales book at MeFed. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I explain to my parents what I'm doing? How does this happen? Why am I here? I'm like running pictures of naked women. And and one day Jay Rabinovitz, I called up Jay who is the CFO at MG. And I said, I got a job. And he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I said, I'm, I'm working here at PSO. He says, how much are they paying you? And I said, it's not how much they're paying me. It's how much I'm learning. He said, how much are they paying you? I said, you know, Dick. Uh, I said, you know, Jay, it's not, it's not, it's not about that. It's about, it's about the experience to get, to get the experience to do this well. To which he said, how much are they paying you? To which I said $13,000 a year. He says, how are you going to live on that? And I was selling records. I was doing, I was selling things. I was eating at, you know, I was living in a thing called Club California, which had orange carpets at 10982 Roebling and, you know, adjacent to UCLA. I was, friends of mine at UCLA were giving me coupons from the UCLA Bruin for dollar chicken at what was KFC and is now in an out burger. And, you know, you're somehow, but it's not healthy. And it's somehow you're surviving. And he said, um... You better be learning a lot. <laughs> and 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 two weeks later, he called up and he said, go meet the head of international sales at MGM. And I was at MGM with the blessing of PSO. As, as Dick said, he said, I like you, so I'm not going to kill you. And, and, and how and, much was the increase in salary to the new job? Well, I, you know, I probably shouldn't tell this story because it is it is one of the, you know, it, it, these, these are boring stories. So They're the, not the, boring, the, Sandy. No, no, no. So I go to MGM and they said 21, right? <laughs> And 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 it ended up being eighteen, and and I said and I got there. I said, how did it end up? And I think the chairman of the board of MGM looked at how much I was making personally and said, we can knock a couple of grand off this guy and he'll still take the job. So one day I get a call from Human. Re By the way, there are four MBAs at MGM at this time. It's a small company. Four MBAs. You know, one's the head of marketing, one's the head of publicity. Jay, I think the treasurer never went to business school. And me, and and I'm like you know, I, you know I'm you know I'm I'm like you know I'm I'm just like a low man on the totem pole here, but happy to be. I figured. I'd, by the way, I thought I would spend the rest of my natural life at MGM. I figured once you got a job, you stayed at the company for the rest of your life. Little did I understand that that those days never existed for most of these studios, and you know they kind of people came and went with each regime and if the production side got fired which they did regularly you know there was often a changeover on the other sides as well and, and then when I got into production then it was even more volatile but I remember getting a call from the head of HR who brought me down he said you know uh, chairman uh, we have a job here and the job is to be a manager 
in the lab. So they still were processing prints at Metro Lab. And he said, uh, I need your advice. I was like, I'm talking to the head of HR. I'm making $18,000 a year. He wants my advice. What, what do you, what, what? He said, so here's the deal. He said, we got two candidates for the job. One of them's like an MBA from an Ivy League school. And one of them is, uh, you know, a local college graduate with a business background. And he said, uh, you know, the chairman wants us to hire the Ivy League MBA. And I said, well, what does the job do? He says, well, you know, you keep track of typewriters, you keep track of, you know, all the office equipment, filing cabinets, stuff like that. And I said, well, you know, I think the, uh, the Ivy League MBA is not going to stay in that job very long. I mean, they're taking that as a transition. And I said, if you want somebody who's going to stay, obviously, someone who wants to be more administrative and, and without, you know, that kind of credential is a probably a better candidate for a couple of years and might even progress at Metro Lab, where they probably would have a great, you know, career trajectory running a facility, you know, growing up in the administration of a facility like that. He says, you know, I think the same thing. I said, but before we make that decision, what does the job pay? To which he said, $25,000 a year. I said, I'm making eighteen. <laughs> he said, we all know you're here for different reasons. <laughs> and it was like, and, and welcome to the But when I, so, look, I mean, and then, you know, then you get fired. I mean, you know, I get fired by MGM. I mean, there was a regime change, and uh, Freddie Fields, so I was there pre-David Beagleman. David Beagleman came in for that period of time. I moved into production, which was not trivial, by the way. Production is very covetous of who actually is there. And I remember the first day I showed up in, I, the head of production, David Chasman, hired me, I think, because he felt I could keep up with him. He had never gone to college. He had read vociferously. Uh, he, read, he read voraciously. He um, was extraordinarily well-educated. He's a wonderful man. He was brilliant. He had a, a, a photographic memory, and he had come up through the advertising route at UA working on the Beatles films, and he figured I could somehow try to keep up with him as assistant. So I move in produ production without a lot of fanfare. I show up in dailies. Now, dailies is before video. You actually went down to the basement of the Thalberg building, which is now Sony, and sat in a dark room and watched the rushes, the sort of takes from the day before of what the director had done. And I remember everybody walking in, and there was a complete lack of comfort with my being there, but no one wanted to ask me to leave because they were friends. But it was more like I had invaded their club. And um, finally someone walked in, I think the head of physical production, Lou Racknell, and said, congratulations. And you could see an entire shift in the room which was, oh, you are supposed to be here, and oh, what does that mean for me? And, you know, the truth of the matter is the industry should be less based on fear and less based on, you know, the sense that I am creative and you are not, I am better than you and you are not, because the truth of the matter is we're all audience. I look for feedback from all kinds of people, and the feedback you get from the audience and from people is often the most important that you will get. But then, you know, the regime changed. So uh, Freddie Fields got, you know, came into power. He got, uh, David got fired. And basically every, I think they needed my office for, let me put it this way. They needed my office for one of uh, Freddie's minions. We won't say what he did for Freddie. And it was a real estate thing. It's like, you know, we need your office and we need you gone. And, um, uh, you know, basically I think Freddie fired me. I love, you know, may he rest in peace. You know, actually Freddie was a state of friend. 
And, you know, but Freddie fired me while he was in the midst of reupholstering his furniture. And I remember the story was, you know, I, I Jay called me up. So getting back to the CFO calls me up one day and said, Freddie Fields just called and wants to know what we owe you on termination. He said, what's going on? That's the first I had heard. So I walked down to David Chasman, my boss's office, head of production. I said, David, I just got a call from Jay. What's going on? He said, uh, you know, Freddie's, uh, Freddie's made a decision. And I said to him, and David was not one to ever lose his temper. And I said to him, David, uh, I, I said, did he have a reason? And David, who was an interesting man, he used to sit there doing crossword puzzles at a rapid rate or reading the Bible, um, <laughs> I mean, simply because he was that smart, um, looked up from his desk, which was a custom-made desk, I think, that was made from a door. And he looked up from his desk at me, and it was the only time I think he ever lost his temper. And he said, haven't you learned anything? He doesn't need a reason. And I thought to myself, okay. So I ducked Freddie for a couple of days. Finally, unfortunately, ran into him in the hall. He said, I said, hi, Freddie. He said, he walked down the hall. He says, kid, come see me Friday. At which point I go into Freddie's office and, and, and he, and I was prepared. And, you know, it's look, you know, this is, you know, it's Chinatown, Jake. And, 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 and I'm there and Freddie, see, we're talking. I said, you know, it's all right. I've enjoyed it. I, 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 you know, I hope that we can continue to find ways to work together at which point he ended up taking a call in the middle of this discussion from the guy upholstering his home couch. And there's a long discussion about the upholstery not being right. <laughs> at which point he uses me as an excuse to get off the phone. He like says, this is not going well and I'm in a meeting and I don't like the way the upholstery is working and I'm in a meeting and he hangs up and then he finishes firing me. <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, you know... What you have to do is just assume that they are all, whether you, ever, whether you ever can share them or not, they're just the anecdotes of your life. If I was working on a factory floor, this would never happen this way. What could be more amusing? And I remember going to, to Victor Dre, and Victor is sort of the king of, of, of Las Vegas right now, and maybe one of the greatest club Im impresarios and restaurateurs of our time. But he, at the time, was actually a great producer. He actually was either married or dating Ka Jacqueline Bissett. And, um, and he was throwing, it was literally that day, he, I went into his office, and I wasn't, and he was throwing a party that weekend, and it was an all white party. I mean, in those days when, you know, you'd all not that I had white to wear, but you had all white party. And he said, you are coming, of course. To which I said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah, I said, Freddie's going to be there because he was one of Freddie's best friends. And he says, of course, Freddie will be there. I said, well, Freddie just fired me. He says, fuck, Freddie, come, <laughs> join the party. And I thought to myself, this is great. And actually, the nicest thing that happened was um, the MGM publicity department, which was quite small, um, got written when it mattered in the trades, in the Hollywood Reporter, they placed an article which ended up on page three that literally talked about my being fired. But what it really was was printed my resume. Um, although the headline, which is not written by the same people, right? The article was Climbing Ousted by Fields at MGM. And at, you think that helped you? Well, the good, you know, the it helped in a couple of ways. One is it let people know I was available to get hired. Two, um, it printed my resume. And three, 
it made it seem like I was important enough to be ousted. I mean, I wasn't important enough to be ousted. It was like, that's crazy. And David Gerber called up, who was the uh, largest producer on the TV, uh, in TV at MGM. He had half of the TV production at MGM. Jeff Sagansky had just left. Peter Chernin was still there. Peter was a friend. And I actually had supervised you know, their projects and, in fact, got into a huge argument with uh, Freddie over uh, a project. We were going to do a female Dirty Harry concept. And we were in the meeting with Freddie, and Freddie really was ruthless on the project. He says, this is immoral. This is exactly a man made lipstick and, you know, and, and American gigolo. But I, he had somehow reformed in the process. And, <laughs> and, 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 and by the way, I, I ended up good friends with him after. And he was, he was merciless. And he was like going at Gerber, who was not an easy, you know, Gerber was no pushover. Gerber, Gerber looked like a football player and talked like one and, and was one of the world's leading TV producers. And, you know, he was going, this is horrible. How dare you come in with an idea like this? It's immoral and this and that. And there was nothing immoral about the idea, by the way. It was an opportunity to put a woman in a powerful role and go make an interesting movie. And, and, and we left. And I argued with Freddie, which probably hastened my demise. And I, it wasn't an ugly argument, but I didn't say, oh, you're right, Freddie. What was I thinking? I said, no, no, no. There's nothing. We went on about why it was a good idea. At which point, and this... You know, is again, you just sort of step back, and I actually hadn't remembered. So we're in Madeline Warren's office as vice president after the meeting, and I'm with Chernin, and I swear to you, I was Gerber threw me up against the wall, grabbed my balls, and said, The kid's got balls. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm now fired, and Gerber calls up and says, You know, you were fired, come work for me. And I went to work for, I got my same parking spot back, which faced Kirk Kirkorians, may he rest in peace. I went from the third to the fourth floor of the Thalberg building. And instead of being, you know, a production executive, I was vice president of production and learned TV. And the big difference there, which is something I've tried to impress on the kids, is there's a huge difference. And, and it's served me well with friends of mine when they are finally fired from studio jobs, whether even the heads of studios, because they don't quite get. So when you go from being a buyer to being a seller, there's a phone. Now there's a phone and a computer, but there's a phone. And that you get a clean desk, and in those days there was a phone, and if you didn't pick up the phone, nothing happened. When you're a buyer, calls come in. When you're a seller, nothing happens unless you pick up the phone. Very interesting. Very interesting. It's so true, and the persistence of coming through after you're sold something and and calling and following up are so important because. You just can't really assume that anybody wants what you have. You have to assume that there's other people coming in right after you with ideas that are comparable to yours or better, and you have to keep calling and selling. Well, you don't pick up the phone. You don't even get the opportunity to have the first discussion. I mean, basically, you're sitting there, and you're, you're packaging dreams. And you got to listen to what dreams people are filling in, if it's an 8 o'clock or a 9 o'clock slot on a Tuesday, if it's TV. I mean, we made For Love and Honor. We made Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I mean, short live series, but fascinating exercises. Gerber was doing Last Days of Pompeii. We did a George Washington miniseries. We're preparing a U.S. Grant miniseries. Great fun. You're dealing with agents. You're dealing, in, and you had to make yourself welcome, visible, and useful. Wow, that's incredible. So tell me the first time you got a gig as the president of something and how it happened. Well, you know, that probably was a mistake. But, you know, all mistakes are opportunity sets. So I was working for Gerber, and uh, 
Ternan had left for Showtime. Fred Whitehead was now there. And I got a call because uh, a subsidiary of the San Francisco Chronicle, which was a production subsidiary, um, needed a new head. Tom Scorus was leaving. And someone had recommended me to go run the company. And I was in my 20s. Was that Westcom? And that was Westcom Productions. And we made several... And it was a great experience because it was like wrangling a P&L. It was coming up with a business plan at a time when the industry was changing because it was right at the... I, you know, one of the reasons that I didn't stay in distribution was because pay TV went from... I, you know, when I was selling pay TV before I moved into production, we had 40 buyers and within 18 months there were four. And, you know, eventually there were two. There are more today, but then there were very few. And, and home video was coming in, and that was very much a packaged goods business. So I was there at a transitional stage, and we made three very low-budget films, all of which I think in the end did fine. And, uh, but the Chronicle you know, was going through family transition, other issues, and it was, it was almost a hobby of one of the family members, and the hobbies got discontinued. And so how did you get the Lionsgate? Now, the Lionsgate we're talking about is not the Lionsgate that exists today. So it's Lionsgate's not. a bridge in Canada. And he, Robert Altman, had his company was Lionsgate. And I, was, I watched the initiation of what happened to that company. So Altman, Altman had a facility. He wanted a physical facility, and it became a post-production facility and production facility. And he lost control of it to some investors. Um, and w w I was there at the at, at when they opened the facility, and I said, "This isn't going to work because it was one sound stage, it was one ADR Foley stage, and I was kind of at the party, and it was you know in the heyday of you know the it's kind of that craziness. People are spilling drinks on the mixing board, and I'm going, I don't understand what these people are doing, but they're all having a lot of fun." And it was uh, you know, Jonathan Taplin and, and, and a guy named Robert Chester. And Robert was the money behind it. And they bought the place, and the goal was to make... They, they did, with, with Shelley Duvall, they did, mass, they, they did fairy tale theater for Showtime in the early days. But then they had trouble making the facility work. And in the end, Robert Chester uh, had to take over the facility to make it financially viable. So I had uh, I, I was I was leaving Westcom and Robert knew me and he said, "Look, I, I need a president to run this place and basically figure out what to do." So I showed up, took a look around, and said, "We're going to do the following things." I said, first things first, I said, "We're going to get some productions in here." And the crazy part for me was I was calling heads of production and trying to, and bringing in production. And for the most part, if you're running a post-production facility, if you get an associate producer on the phone, you're lucky. <laughs> and so I brought in HBO. I brought in others. Uh, Sherwood Productions, that was run by my friend Mike Nathanson. And it was a great production. And he had, and Robert had alienated the uh, actually uh, Mike Minkler, who was one of the great re-recording mixers of our time. And Mike had left. And he had uh, a, a need for a star mixer. And I basically went out and hired a star mixer to come in. And the star mixer was someone who actually practiced everything from voodoo to spirituality. And I basically said to him, I said, look, you want to chant on the roof naked? I don't care. You know, go burn incense on the mixing board. All I care is that the directors think you're doing a great job and the films come out sounding superb. And then I looked at him and said, we have to sell the place fast. And what we had was real estate play. We did some production, but I had a real estate play. 
And I made a list of seven buyers, and within less than a year, we had sold it to Tadeo. And at that moment, normally in my life, there was one job waiting for me when another job had ended. I actually, at that point, had three jobs or more that were on tap. And for six and a half years, seven years, I had been trying to go to CAA. I told them I'd do anything. I told them what, it was a tiny agency when I met these people. And, you know, when I was at MGM and they couldn't afford a screening room, mm-hmm. and they couldn't. Think about that. When you said when you met these people, when you met the people at CAA, it was when they first started in the well, 70s? They, they, CAA started in 75. By 79, you know, there were probably 35, 45 agents. 45 agents, give or take, I knew 35 of them. And a lot of the young agents, and, and these were the best of the best. They they had nowhere to screen films. They didn't have resources. And I had a screening budget at MGM. I could I could requisition a screening room. So anytime I saw a film of an innovative director, I would invite the agents down. So why would I, you invite those agents as opposed to other agents? Um, I knew them, and frankly, in those days, they were the they were and and while I was there, continued to be the most attentive, uh, most caring most knowledgeable and most supportive people you could ever engage with. So you're talking about Mike Ovitz, Ron Meyer. So I had met Ron, didn't know Mike at this time. Um, I had not gotten hired. I had gone in to see Mike Rosenfeld, the senior Mike Rosenfeld. But really, Todd Smith, Mike Menschel, um, who were young agents. Mike was the first trainee in the in the in the in the, in the uh, was in the Robin was Robin Williams' agent for a long time. Was and and uh, Judy Hoffland, others, and you From know something. Hoffland Pallone, who uh, merged yeah. with uh, Gavin Pallone to form a management yeah, all, production. All great at what they do, and and at the end of the day, I would just try to be helpful. If I saw something interesting, I'd let them know, and they, you know, they kept telling Mike to hire me. Now it's six and a half years later. And I was on my way to ICM. I, there, was a, there was a production company that wanted to hire me as head of production. And uh, I, was a, I, I had talked with the head of uh, TV packaging at ICM who said, I'll be back from holiday. Let's talk. And the phone rang, and it was Ray Kurtzman, May Recipes, head of business affairs for CAA. And I had interviewed with Ovitz the first time several years before and did not get hired, which is, a, by the way, a story he probably will never Want told, and 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 well, it was you, fine. Can you tell the story for us? No, I you know I was going to work for Gerber, and you know you, you know it, it just the time wasn't right. So Ray called up and said, "What you doing?" And I said, "You know, Ray, I'm, I'm I you know we've sold the company as you know, and it's been fine. It's actually a great exit for everybody. But I you know I'm talking to ICM. He says, then maybe we shouldn't be talking." At which point I said. You know, Ray, you know how I've told you. I said, you tell me, you shake my hand, and you tell me I have any job, and I'm there. You tell me I'm sweeping the floors, I'm there. You tell me I'm getting coffee, I'm there. I don't care what it is. I don't care what the salary is. All I want to know is that I have a job. You just were the president of Westcom and the president of Lionsgate Studios. And you're calling CAA, telling them you'll sweep the floors. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think when you lose perspective on working with great people, you lose perspective. Now, sometimes you can influence that. You can hire them. But I I, I saw 
talent management. I saw the proximity. I saw what they were doing. And they were an unparalleled quality of people. And I think the reason I got hired then was I, I think I walked into Mike's office and I had um, an article on what were then the up-and-coming investment bankers in the media and entertainment business out of a magazine called Channels, which actually Norman Lear owned. And it was a magazine he'd never seen, and it was a list of people he had not seen. And at that point, there was a thought the agency should be evolving the agency side of the business in terms of yet the next level of sophisticated finance and business, as well as looking beyond only agenting in terms of participating in what was the next phase of transition in ownership capitalization for the entertainment industry. And I think he had no idea what I was going to do. He put me in a, this is at 1888 Century Park East. His office was a corner office, and across the hall there was an interior glass phone booth. <laughs> that was basically his small conference room, which was two sides glass, two sides wall, and just enough room to turn around. And he said, sit in there and we'll figure it out. And if you're not busy, close the blinds so people don't think you're idle. <laughs> and, you know, what ended up happening, which was the miracle of CAA in those days, was, you know, I think he thought he hired me for financial things. And I just ignored that. And he said, it's a waste of your time to be an agent. And I said, no. And I said, what gives you currency to do everything else is your relationships with talent. And when you talk about the unexpected, part of the unexpected was that uh, he and Ron were going to go take a trip to France. I think they were on a sort of barge floating down the Loire. And Redford, who at the time was CIA's, Redford. was the most important actor in the world. There's not even a question. This is post-ordinary people, phenomenal director, height of his acting career. And... He said, Redford wants to create a low-budget movie company. He said, frankly, no one here, he, I don't think anyone there cared about low-budget movie companies. And he said, I, I'm going to not be here. You're going to Sundance, and you're going to meet with Redford. And in, and also, it was Cineplex Odeon. It was Garth Drabinsky and Joel Michaels. And it was Garth Drabinsky. And he said, you're going to go to Sundance, and good luck. And he said, what's going to happen is, I'm going to be in my office a meeting with Redford. You're going to walk in on the pretext of giving me a paper. I'm going to introduce you to Redford. He's probably going to ignore you, which he did. You're going to leave, and then you're going to Sundance. So I show up at Sundance, and Redford is like, who is he and why is he here? And Gary Hendler, may he rest in peace, who was Redford's former lawyer and probably closest advisor, looked at me and sort of said, you know, Bob's not happy you're here. And I, he said he's going to invite you to come talk to him on Saturday afternoon. And, you know, the good news was I knew the head of production for Cineplex Odeon because he was a tenant before Cineplex at Lionsgate. He actually rented space there for his production company. So I had that in my corner. And I sat with Bob, which is an intimidating thing to do, and, you know, me, I've never really been intimidated by celebrity or position. I think people are good people or not good people. If they're good people, great. If they're not good people, position doesn't give you the opportunity to behave badly. 
And Bob was truly one of the smartest and most creative people I've ever met. And he asked me some questions, and I did something that I've always done, and I made an easy decision to do it that could have well backfired, is I told him the truth. I told him what movies I liked him in. I told him what movies I didn't like him in. I told him there were things that the agency had recommended that I would not have recommended, which, by the way, would have gotten me fired had anyone, you know, transmitted that communication. And I told him the truth. I said, you know, legal eagles. I said, I love the comedy turn you did, but honestly, I, I wouldn't do it again. And, um, and we talked about films, filmmaking, love of the process, um, right and wrong decisions, values. And, um, and I just told him the truth because that's all you can do. If you can tell, it doesn't matter whether it's creative art, a creative talent or anyone in life. If you can tell them the truth in the way they can hear it, you've done a great thing for them. And, you know, at the, uh, you know, at the end of the, of the, of the weekend we had gone, I thought it was going to be one meeting. It turned out to be the entire weekend we were meeting. And I had my then girlfriend, later wife, now ex-wife with me. And, um, and, and, you know, one of his minions came over and said, are you, uh, Bob's going to invite you to fly back with him on Monday, which of course, you don't know what to do. And I had the girlfriend. And, uh, and I thought about it, and I made the right decision there, too, is Bob came over and said, will you fly back with me? By the way, I'd never seen a private jet. I'm not even sure. I, conceptually, I'm not even sure I knew there were private jets. And, uh, and I said, can she come? And he said, of course. Because to leave her there would have also been the wrong thing, or to have her fly. She had offered to fly home you know, without me because she knows it's business, but it's just not the right things to do. And you make the right decisions. You do the right things by people. You try to put yourself in their position. You try to understand all that's going on around them. And then I was blessed because all of the talent clients I worked with, they all wanted to do the right thing. None of them wanted to take the last dime off the table. They always wanted to treat people well. They were honorable guys, uh, you know, just couldn't have been more honorable in their dealings. And I often found, you know, that CAA, because of its, its influence, its power, and its position, allowed you to do the right things, whereas others, because they had to prove something or to have an edge or were insecure at other agencies, I often felt we had an advantage because you could do the right things and your clients would back you up. Redford would invariably ask, what's the right thing to do? As did De Niro, as did Costner, as did Michael Mann. Incredible. All right, final roundup here of questions. I can't help but ask you something that I don't think I've, I've ever asked anybody here before. I don't think I've ever sat across from someone so successful, yet such an amazing failure in the interview process than you. I've never heard anybody in this couch say that they've gone on so many interviews and not gotten things, but yet they're as successful as you. I would love for you to tell our audience who oftentimes pounds the pavement. I mean, actors in this town, I always say, I'm going 100 auditions, I don't get anything, I might get one. I think to myself, if I could play the lottery and have a one in 100 chance of winning, I'd play every day. So you just kept going and going and getting knocked down 
and you kept getting up, dusting yourself off and going back out there. But I mean, I don't think I know of anybody in my life who's gone on that many interviews and not gotten things and become as successful as you. How did you do it? Well, you know, it's, it, you know, it's not so much how you do it. It's, it's your comfort in who you are. I mean, the reality is, I mean, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of a job I didn't get. And, I, and I, this will probably get us thrown off the air. Um, so Ray Stark was interviewing. May he rest in peace. Ray Stark, the legendary Ray Stark, is interviewing. Producer. And producer, manipulator, friend of Herbert Allen, savior of Columbia Pictures. And he's hiring. And I'm like, you know, and I, I, I can't even, I'm not even sure I could get an interview. And I said to someone, I said, what, what what why you know the background's good and you know done lots of things really steady to which they said ray wants somebody to fly and fuck with him and i realized i'm not a fly and fuck kind of guy <laughs> i you know with all due respect i mean if he wants someone to fly around and like pick up girls and shit you know excuse the language i you know i i, I you know i'm not it's not me so what you want to do you're is, not the wingman i'm i would forget wingman it's like co-pilot <laughs> you know it's 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 never been me i mean you know look i i you know my you know i i've not i, I you know in a world of people who you know you know think orgies and hot tub fevers are often part of you know life you know no drugs no orgies no nothing i lead a boring life by the way at the agency this served me well because beyond the clients i dealt with directly i did three jobs at caa i was an agent i co-founded in 87 and ran the corporate side of the business with mike and i helped run the agency and i knew lots and lots of clients and they would go to their agents for something when they needed something of a certain type. But when things got really ugly or when they needed gravitas or they needed someone who would not repeat what, what was going on in their lives and they wanted someone where they knew absolutely rock solid that they could rely on to get done whatever it was, they often came to me. And that's who I was is I'm the guy who when things are not going well, you can count on to go the extra mile and to do the things that are the right things to set the course in the direction it should go, whatever that may be. And no one would ever know that you did it, that I did it. So you have to know who you are. And eventually you have to find the right place for you. If you're in a place where your personality is out of sync with what the environment is, you're not going to be happy or succeed. You know, the, the business that I do today, I mean, the miracle for me is that, I mean, look, I started doing technology in the early 90s. And I also was the bridge to the financial community. I'm the bridge to the World Economic Forum, lots of different things. These are things that the average agent doesn't have in their, you know, relationship or career path. And the reason I was able to do that is because I've been lucky enough to be able to make understandable different worlds to different people and harmonize the value systems. And I also work really well with young people. And, you know, the older I get, the happier I am with the technology companies and the entrepreneurs I deal with. You know, age is a state of mind. I mean, the blessing I have is that I've gone through enough of those rejections 
so that I, you know, I know who I am and I know what I do well. And what happens when I partner up with people, whether it's in the entertainment space, the finance space, or the technology space, is that there's a, a shared set of understandings about what the goals are, what the values are, and that instead of talking about things, things actually get done. Now, you know, you gotta you gotta go through a lot of you know what do you say kiss a lot of frogs until you find the right life partner. You kiss a lot of frogs until you find the right place for your own career and your own heart. And you know, I I think every rejection that I had was I don't take no for an answer really well either. But I think that the stick-to-itiveness and the sense of understanding what it's like to, to, to not have things always come easily has been absolutely at the core and invaluable in terms of my own professional life and in the coaching, the whatever leadership I provide to others, and in the sense of being able to empathize and work with people to help them maximize their gifts. Tell me somebody who you interviewed and didn't hire or somebody you fired that went on to do great things like you have. Oh, there are lots of those. You know, it's in, in the corporate side of things, I, 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 and I knew it at the time that we didn't, we didn't really have a place for him. It was John Mass who, at the early days of our uh, corporate side, I interviewed, and he had a great background. He went off to Mars and did great things. Um, there's there's always people more more in my life have been people that I didn't have a position for, but came to me for advice or a touch point. So I remember I was on the James Redford Organ Transplant Awareness, uh, Red, uh, Bob Redford's son uh, charity uh, for for many years, and so was Neil Bear, who was Dick Wolf's partner and really one of the great television writers of our time. And, uh, and I, I remember the first board meeting we were at, and, and he looked at me and he said, you know we met when you were at Westcom, and I had just come to Hollywood, and someone introduced me to you. And he said the advice that you had given me, he said the advice you gave me, you know, you were very nice, and the advice was valuable. We didn't do anything, but he then turned into one of the greatest writers of, you know, the era in television, still one of the great writers. I remember one of my favorite stories was I was talking with Chris Melodandre at Illumination. And I didn't know this, but I mean, I, I love Chris. And Chris is truly one of the massively gifted people of our time. And uh, he said, because he knew I knew Steve Jobs. And um, w when I was at CAA, Jobs had called me up and said, would you mind bringing Ovitz up here so we can talk about Pixar? And there was about seven minutes of a pencil sketches for Toy Story. And and um, and he said, I need some help with Disney. And Disney prevailed on Mike not to provide the help, but I loved what they were doing. It was, it was a revelation. And I had come back, and Chris, I think, was still at Fox. And he was beginning to, to stretch out on his own, and maybe he was forming Illumination. And he said, you know, I had told him about what my experiences were, and I, I had said to him, I said, you should go talk to Steve Jobs. At which point he said, you know, can you make an introduction? I said, I'm, I'm not sure I can. But I said, you should call him. And he did. And he said, Steve Jobs met him. He said they became, they, they, they actually stayed in good touch. 
and he said it was an extremely valuable suggestion. The trick in life is to try to do as much good as you can at every step of the way. Try to be constructive and uplifting as often as you can. Elevate people rather than drag them down. And, you know, probably the wrong way to end any discussion is to talk about karma. I actually believe that whether there is karma or not, you should leave this planet with a better footprint than you found it. Incredible. All right. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name, anything that comes to mind, anything. Leonardo DiCaprio. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio is one of the greatest actors of all time, in my opinion. The Aviator was, you know, The Aviator is an interesting case in point. I was, a produ I was one of the producers of The Aviator, and, you know, my role was very straightforward. So Leonardo had the idea when he was, his mother had introduced, I believe his mother had introduced him to the story of Howard Hughes when he was in his teens, probably. Uh, he started the project, I think, when he was around 20. Um, he and Michael Mann got together, and Michael is one of the greatest writer-directors of any time. And they had uh, eventually hired John Logan to develop the script, but it's now a decade later, and I'm now partnered with Michael Mann. And this project's been in development for a decade. So one of the first things that comes in when Michael and I are partnering is the script for The Aviator. And, you know, I figure I'll go home and read it over. John Logan had written it, and John Logan was coming off RKO 281 and, and, and Gladiator and, and many other things. It was a phenomenal writer. And I so so long, I said, I'll read it over two nights. Couldn't stop reading it. I just, it was, you know, it's like lying on the bathroom floor trying not to wake up the family, flipping pages because I couldn't stop. And ultimately, you know, DiCaprio at 30 looked like Hughes. But I think he brings to every part he does a discipline. He brings to his life a discipline. He is private about the things you should be private about, and he is um, public about the things you should be public about. He has created enormous awareness about the environment and other charitable causes. And frankly, I think he's the kind of model you want to hold out as one of the, you know, life patterns you recommend people follow if they can at any level. Mike Ovitz. Michael Ovitz, one of the, the greatest leaders and salesmen of all times. He reinvented not just the agency business, but the sense of how people should work together in a creative enterprise, whether they are the talent or the people serving the talent. And uh, th there's, you know, there are moments in time where people are transformative in the industry. The thing that I would say about the CAA of Mike Ovitz, Ron Meyer, and Bill Haber, and also Roland Perkins and Mike Rosenfeld and Tom Ross and Marty, ba and Marty Baum is that these this group understood how a group really should work and how to build what is effectively you know the murderers row yankees there with the depth every tier had enormous depth and skill and one of the greatest skills of mike ron and bill and the others who helped found the agency um was that they understood higher people of quality higher people of values and encourage them to work together rather than to compete and trip each other in the hallway. The notion of rewarding team effort was new to the agency business. And frankly, 
The notion of rewarding team effort is how I lead my life. Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro is one of the most interesting and in some ways probably misunderstood personalities. Um, because he immerses himself in his parts and he does not like to talk about himself, although he does, but you know, lots of people like to just talk about themselves and he'd rather talk about anything else. Um, extraordinary gift in terms of anything he touches creatively is elevated by his work. A deep engagement in terms of immersing yourself in the part to the point at which if it's Al Capone or Cape Fear, sometimes you don't even want to be around because of the sort of darkness that comes with what is that level of immersion an actor has. Um, on the other hand, honorable to an extreme, polite to an extreme. I'll tell you two, you know, I'll tell you stories about De Niro. So with De Niro, I, I, I was in New York on my own dime, couldn't afford anything new at CAA, working with De Niro. Ovitz calls up and says, uh, Bob De Niro knows you're, Bob De Niro thinks you're coming to see him. I said, well, I didn't tell him I was in New York. He says, he knows you're in New York. He says, he thinks you're coming to see him. I said, well, I, he says, if you value your job, you're going to go see him. <laughs> um, and so I go, okay. And I figure now I got to change the flight for the girlfriend who's soon to be the wife. And it's the same girlfriend. And, and it's like, oh my God, you know, what do I do? And I, I said to her, I got a car and we drove out to the set of Stanley and Iris and we were meeting in a Ramada Inn, and I said to her, she says, you know, I, I said, you know, I said, I, I, she said, can I come along? I said, are you okay if I come along? I said, it would be great. I said, but I don't think I can introduce you to him because I don't know him well enough. So she's sitting at one end of the Ramada Inn. He's sitting at the other with me. We're having soup. We're talking. It's all good. And um, at the end of it, he said, is she with you? And I said, yeah. And he got up and he went over and introduced himself and had a conversation. And I thought to myself, the number of actors who would have been aware and acted on that, or people, it's just common courtesy. It could be anybody. It just was a lovely thing to do. And I had the pleasure of working with him on the, uh, he turned the Tribeca Film Center into condos, redeveloped the Martinson you know, Coffee Warehouse into what is the Tribeca Film Center. He built a, you know, a, a worldwide enterprise with Mayor Tepper in restaurants. The man is a visionary, an artist, an entrepreneur, and he is a caring human being. Danny DeVito. Couldn't be more fun. And Danny's just great. And you know, great father, great family man, great actor, and in a sense... Uh, a great partner, whether it's to Michael Douglas or to Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, the, the man has enormous creative energy. All of the actors that I worked with turned into great directors. I mean, I worked with De Niro on A Bronx Tale, his first directing effort. I started working with De Niro on his second directing effort, The Milagro Beanfield War, which is a much forgotten film and an amazingly great movie. It's, a, it's like a European film housed in a Hollywood body and Universal didn't quite know what to do with it. And DeVito was the same way. I mean, he is a, a consummate filmmaker. Um, I, I, he, he's, you know, he's a joy to be with. And frankly, all of these guys, 
do extraordinary things people know nothing about for other people. Kevin Costner. Costner is, um, to me, um, the you know the ultimate supportive human being, and also the ultimate entrepreneur. You know, Kevin is happiest when he's outside the studio system and taking risks, and he invariably succeeds with the risks. Um, again, morals complete in terms of integrity. A handshake, all of these guys, a handshake is a handshake. I never, you know, if I gave a handshake on behalf of them, that handshake worked. But I started working with Costner on, um, I guess, the... Um, uh, the baseball picture, uh, Field of Dreams. And and then we put together Dances with Wolves. And he he exudes uh, an, an, a, a passion and an emotion that, uh, whether it's as a father or a man, as a lover, people responded to. But Dances with Wolves was an extraordinary situation. He took... You know, he put up his salary, took all the risk. He did it independently. Nobody wanted to do it. It was one-third in the Lakota dialect. Warner said, we'll make the film, but we don't want a third of it in the Lakota dialect. There were length issues with it. Orion ended up uh, taking the domestic piece, and Jake Eberts, may he rest in peace, you know, sold the foreign. The film went over budget. He absorbed the over budget. Um, he made a movie nobody could ever have imagined. I mean, when I saw when he invited me to see the first screening of the film and it was over and it was two and a half hours and by today's standards there are longer films but that was a long film in those days i i just had no idea how much time had passed i thought we were there for 90 minutes it just flew by and you know it's not just that the film was a financial success it's not just that it won oscars for everybody it's that the film touched people and showed that you could be wildly successful outside of the traditional system at a time when that was not so obvious. And the same is true with Redford, by the way. Of the films that I'm particularly proud of, River Runs Through It, Quiz Show, you know, it's the smaller films, the ones, and, you know, with, with Quiz Show, he grew up in the era. Quiz Show is a film. Ray finds, you know, it's the Quiz Show scandals. That was the moment. People thought television in the 1950s was God. They thought it was all true. And he was growing up at that era. And when the quiz show scandals, the fact that they had been feeding Herbie Stemple, uh, uh, Mark Van Doren, the, um, the answers, and it unmasked the deception of television. It was like unmasking, it was like what the Watergate scandal did for the presidency. It reoriented how everybody thought about something that they had placed so much hope and faith in. And you thought that no one could do something like this. And he absolutely captured that moment in American life, what it meant to him, what it meant to others. And River Runs Through It, nobody wanted to make that movie. went through three financiers, and then Columbia picked it up because the film was just, it will continue to be one of the great American films for all time. Wow. Your proudest moment in show business. My proudest moment in show business is never a moment. You know, the proudest moment in show business for me is when I meet somebody where we've done something together. Sometimes I don't even know what the depth of it is. And 
they tell me a story, whether it's like Chris and Steve Jobs, whether it's Neil Baer, whether it's projects we worked on. Ted Kenny was the head of production um, at Reality and is a great producer. I think he's working for Fox Sports now, and he's just great. And at, at, at one point, we were talking about some projects together recently, and he was nice enough to say, you have no idea how much our work at Reality has influenced how I approach all of the projects that I take forward. Now, I don't think that's, I don't, I don't actually necessarily, I'm, I'm, I'm honored he says it. Honestly, I think he is transferring to me things that are inherent and inside him. And it's just a touch point for that. Because I think the, the good is in these people and the good work is in these people. And if you can be around to help bring it out, they may remember that, but it's ultimately their gifts and their work. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you use that disappointment to fuel you to the next level. You know, my bit probably, you know, there you know, there there were moments where we could have expanded CAA. There were deals we could have done at CAA that we didn't do. We chose not to work directly with Pixar. Um, uh, I remember I had walked in on Teletv. I had walked into Mike Ovitz's office. Teletv was in its day what has already happened with technology and the internet and really the excitement that I have from where we are now, which is I think where we are now is the most exciting time in the history of entertainment with social media communities, all of the tools that we have today to sort of bring people together around media properties, entertainment, thoughts, and the ability to create not just entertainment, but good from entertainment. So take yourself back to a time where this is, you know, before the internet bubble meltdown. So I walk into Mike's office and I got in one hand, I've got um, cable companies and there are dots all over the country. And these are the cable MSO you know, locations. Mike Ovitz at CAA, his yeah. office. And in the other hand, I've got regional bell operating companies, and there are seven of them, and they're blocks of states, and they, they have connection to every home. And I say, why don't we take three of these and create a broadcast group, which became Teletv. And it was also at a time where the cable companies were thinking about launching telephone services, which they now have done, and we figured the phone company should launch video services. So we brought together, in the end, 9X, which is today Verizon, and Bell Atlantic, which is today Verizon, and Pacific Telesis into what was Teletv. Americast was Disney's version of this. They had the other version. And we hired Howard Stringer, Sandy Grushow to run it. And there were discussions with DirecTV about merging. Now, DirecTV, I think, you know, rough justice... They were, they were going to do a merger, and the telcos had to throw in about $2.5 billion, if my memory serves me correctly. And they, that would have made DirecTV and Teletv one company, and you would have brought together telco and satellite, which kind of is what AT&T is doing today with DirecTV. And the, the three telcos didn't, didn't want to proceed with it. Um, you know, heaven knows if it would have happened, but the bottom line is we tried to get that to happen. Now, when you think about the fact that DirecTV later exited for $27 billion and that take that up a significant notch for the AT&T merger, 
we would have had a brand on tele-TV that was direct TV. We would have had consumers that were already in the market. We would have had people who were already buying product at a time that could have expanded. And I often think to myself, try not to be too smart. Try not to think that your company has all the answers. And that's the lesson to me of the mergers that didn't take place that would have been valuable. To me, the, the issues are you want to make the cultures blend, but you also want to see what the opportunity of putting one and one together and getting not four but ten might have been. So I wish that had happened. It would have created an enormous amount of value, and it would have provided a lot of, um, I think, support for consumers earlier than later happened and is happening now through the sort of advances of technology and broadband. Awesome. Last question. Tell our audience who's out there somewhere in an office with orange carpeting making $18,000 a year wondering, carrying boxes around with a, a degree and wondering, what is it? What do I got to do? How can I get to the next level? How can I have the kind of life and career that Sandy Kleiman has had? What advice do you have for those people? Not just executives but also artists like a young De Niro or somebody like that and, and and getting to the level that they are you've seen so many artists go from uh you know humble beginnings to to greatness so executives and artists what advice would you give to them to get to that level well you know there's no guarantee for success in anything okay but what i will say is the things that will help you get to success is Humility, discipline, stick-to-itiveness. Well, I don't like the word networking. I think networking is really learning from other people and building relationships and then trying to help them and then understanding when they should help you. Uh, I've, I've rarely asked for help. It's a flaw in my character. But people, if you ask for help, people will give you help. Go Go find people of similar values. Go find people who are supportive and then frankly today it's the conversation i had yesterday with one of the assistants in my office and here's the conversation which speaks directly to your question so she's a lovely woman and we were talking about her career path and i said to her what do you really want to do and we talked about literary we talked about being on set which she'd had some experience uh, in doing before she moved to california and finally, she said, you know, I think I'd really like to direct. Now, there's the old CAA T-shirt that has Ralph the Wonder Dog saying, what I really want to do is direct. And people make jokes of that, but I don't. I actually think it's a, I think I would, it's like, please don't eat the daisies as a play everyone should see or a movie everyone should see. The cab driver writes a play, and because the critic has not given him positive feedback, he decides not to write more. At which point they have a moment at the end where the critic is there and he's saying, why would you stop writing? He said, it was fine. He said, well, you didn't. He says, no, you just keep going. And what I told her was this. I said, if you really want to direct, when I, when I started in the business, equipment was expensive. You had to borrow it. You had to get Kodak to give you, you know, overstock film, you know, ends that you could splice together. I said, today, the creative process has been democratized for everybody. 
I said, frankly, people are shooting movies on iPhones. You could walk into Bel Air Camera in Westwood and walk out. It used to be $6,000. You can walk out for almost nothing with professional equipment. You can edit now with software that is effectively more powerful than an editing suite 20 years ago and do it on your laptop. I said there are the, the world is made up of uh, amateurs, semi-professionals, and people who are trying to move into professional ranks. Steven Spielberg started as a child shooting with an 8-millimeter camera and had to move to a 16-millimeter and eventually got the 35-millimeter. I said, you're in a world where those tools are all available to you. And I said, you could toss a stone you know, out the window here and hit actors that will go work for you for free. If you believe that you want to do this and you believe you have the skills to do this, what I'm going to tell you is go do it. And I think that it is taking the initiative. And I think there is no substitute for understanding yourself that every day you have choices to make. Even with obligations, you have choices to make. If you have kids, enroll them in the process. Rather than water the lawn, go make a movie together. And what we also need are communities that embrace people and encourage them to not just take risks, but to tell stories. Each of us has something to say inside of us. As I said to the young woman last night, all that you learn at USC or UCLA film schools, and I'm on the board at UCLA film school, all of that, you can learn that and more by simply going to sites on the internet, watching instructional videos on the techniques, and probably learn from the masters by looking at what interviews, guidance, and sharing of both the passion and the craft that is available to everybody. And I tell people, you know, you don't have to make a movie to be creative. You can be creative in any job you're at. And you can be a good partner, worker, leader, supporter. And whether or not you ever make a great deal of money, at the end of your life, you should measure yourself by the good you've done, the good work you've done, the good parenting you've done, the good citizenship you've participated in. Today, on the 50th anniversary of the Watts riots, we should look back and we should look at all of our communities and say, are we better? And if we aren't, part of what is in my journey is not just to make money. It is to improve the state of life in my community, on this planet, with my family, and take great joy in the success of applying those, 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 those goals and continue to work at it and pass it on generation to generation. Wow. Sandy Kleiman, you are worth the wait, man. I'm glad I slept in my office. This is fantastic. Well, you know, we'll both sleep here together tonight. It'll be a lovely thing. <laughs> I'll be the Ray Stark to you. But really, you talked about making your footprint, and you talked about when you go into something, be better when you come out. And I know I am, and I know everybody sitting here in this office is, and I know the audience listening to this is much better after they went in and when they came out 
Well, I want to thank you for for the podcasts and the, and and the creativity that you've applied to this. You know, ultimately, w- one of the reasons I love the business is because I love businesses with histories. And without the oral history, there is no history. This is an apprenticeship business. If you think you're going to go learn the entertainment business because there's a library shelf to read, there's a bunch of instructional videos, it can give you skills, but it can't give you what the life stories are. I personally think my life story is, 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 is at, 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 at the, the, the less important end of the people you interview. But at the end of the day, the ones that I you know, have heard, the histories that you're creating and the histories that you will create uh, will be invaluable for generations to come. Well, you are invaluable, and I'm proud to say that you are wrong when it comes to saying that your stories aren't as significant as others, because they are. And for me to say wrong to anybody is very rare, but to you, my friend, I'm going to say that because this has been one of the greatest podcasts I've ever had, and I'm so thankful that you came. Thank you so much. I'm just happy you're my friend. So until the next time, thank you, and everybody, best view in Hollywood outside Barry's office. <laughs> Thank you. As a- they say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.